Good evening. Um, tonight's shear was sponsored by Inna Kahut, Kayut, rather. Lazecha Nishmas, her grandmother, Sarah Bas Hirsch. May she have a very great aliyah to the greatest of heights. May she channel lots and lots of blessings to you and to your family for everything in the material and in the spiritual. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, tonight, I want to give a little bit of a warning before the class. That is that we're coming off a, a big Hasidic holiday, the 19th of Kislev, which generally puts me on a high. In addition to that, I was flying 30,000 feet above the sky, I mean above, <laughs> in the sky. Um, I, w- I went to speak in Chicago and came back. Now, when you're flying 30,000 feet and you're thinking about what to say and teach and Torah, then hopefully you experience things you don't feel down, down here on earth. So based on that, um, what I'd like to share tonight at the class is might cause a shviris hakelem, a shattering of vessels for some people listening. So if you're not ready for some crazy wild ideas, uh, then you're listening on your own risk to the class, whether you're listening online. You're totally free to shut the the, um, recording right now. Don't listen any further. If you are brave enough to listen, then go ahead and listen. And you'll be the judge if what is being said tonight um, makes sense to you or not. I'm not saying anything today as a definite, because I'm not a prophet. But uh, when I look around the world and uh, I see things that are going on, and I try to match the reality that's happening in the world to the teachings of Hasidus and the fundamental worldview coming from the eyes and the mouth of the greatest tzaddikim whose words are prophetic and none of their words fail, then I think I'm up to something very, very clear. Um, There's more to this that I'm going to say tonight, uh, perhaps for another time because we have a limited amount of time. A part of what we're going to talk about tonight has been discussed from this podium last year. Uh, in the same time of the year, Parshas Vayishlach, it wasn't, this week is Parshas Vayeshev, last, week was, last year I discussed this in Parshas Vayishlach. I spoke about a special farbringen from the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which was the last time we heard from him in this season. This came from the last year that before the Rebbe had his stroke, and then he had, and then afterwards, um, so this was the last year that we heard the, the, the Rebbe speak. And the Fabrengans that year were very, very powerful, otherworldly. And you can see that it was a continuous flow of prophecy. And the Rebbe was kind of talking about where we stand in history, uh, very strongly stating that the work of the Jewish people has come to a conclusion. We thought it would not take 25 years for Mashiach to come in its full realization. 
Uh, but yet, we're 25 years later, he's not here yet, but we have a little bit of eyes, we see that tzaddikim say things, and sometimes it takes 25 years to get what they're saying, or two, that our eyes can see what they see. So based on those talks, and there were two sets of Shabbosim, there was a Shabbos, Pashas Vayishlach, where an idea was initiated, which I had discussed last year, and in the following Shabbos, Shabbos Parshas Vayeshev, the idea was further elucidated and discussed with much greater detail. And again, I'm saying very clearly that some of what I'm saying today is a repetition of what I said last year. It's always good to review and to refresh, but there's a lot of news. The reason there's a lot of news is because a lot of new things happened over the last few months that dramatically change all of reality and uh, is very, 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 very messianic. Um, as I mentioned earlier, because you have a newcomer, uh, well, I think she can handle it. Um, <laughs> I made a warning. Oh, see? I made a warning at the beginning of the class today that you're listening at your own risk if you're afraid of a shvira sakelem, of a shattering of the vessels, you have to leave now. If you're willing to hear and judge for yourself, if this makes any sense, go ahead and listen. Okay? Um, I'll make a confession. Everybody knows I am a chassid. I firmly, firmly believe in the teachings of chassidus. I believe the teachings of chassidus are the truest, deepest essence of Torah and that it comes to the world to prepare the world for the coming of Mashiach. Um, and therefore, the holiday of the 19th of Kislev, which is the holiday related to the spreading of the wellsprings of Hasidus, is a day that contains awesome significance. And what I would like to address today is, what happened new this year on the 19th of Kislev? Did we... Did anything advance in the 19th of Kislev in the ultimate scheme of things, of Mashiach's coming to the world and in relationship to how Torah and particularly the inner light of Torah influences the world in bringing about Mashiach's arrival? Can we see anything in the 19th of Kislev? Now we know that Hashem brings a merit to a day that Zakai. Now, interesting, people don't know this. 19th of Kislev became significant by the passing of the Holy Magid and successor of the Balshamtiv, and a few years later, by the 26 years later, interesting number, number of Hashem's name, by the release of the Balatanya, the Alter Rebbe of Shneir Zalman of the Yadi from jail, in which permission was granted for him to spread the light of Hasidus. But really, and there is a book called Shalis Uchuvais Men Hashamayim. Interesting. There is a book, responsa, of questions that were asked 800, 900 years ago. I don't know who the author was. It's one of the Rishonim. Rishonim, okay, like Rashi is from the early sages, early um, commentators on Talmudic, on Talmud and the like. Rashi, Tosfis, Rabbeinu Tam. In that club of these great, great sages, there was someone who authored a book of questions that they asked to heaven in which they got answers. So there is one question in which, and each time it says a date when the question was asked. 
So on one of them it says, it was the 19th of Kislev when the question was asked. And the, it says in the answer over there that today we can't answer you because it's a very busy day in heaven because today on the 19th of Kislev is a Yom Besura. It's a day of good news. It's a day of Besura. Like you say, a Besura Stav is good news. So you see, it's a very, very interesting thing. And nothing else, what, what's the significance of 19th of Kislev? It became a Hasidic holiday. So already hundreds of years earlier, from heaven, they are related that this is a special day. And therefore, I want to say that there is some basura that also relates to the 19th of Kislev, 5777. So what's news? What's news in 5777? To understand this, as I mentioned earlier, Hasidus is a preparation for Mashiach. And when the Holy Baal Shemta went up to the, to the, to the Hechal of Mashiach, and we know that he's not lying. And we know that his student, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef of Pulna, who's a tzaddik kodesh kadash, and he prints the letter from the holy Balshemtiv, so it's authentic, it's no babamizes. Where the Balshemtiv is climbing through the higher realms and all the supernal worlds, and he ends up in Mashiach's chamber. And he says to the holy Mashiach, When are you coming? And Mashiach says, When your springs will spread throughout the entire world. That means that Hasidus is paves the, the path for the coming of Mashiach. And here is a very interesting story. This story I can't vouch for its truth. It's a story that Hasidim tell. It's not brought down in one of the writings of a Rebbe, in which I can therefore say that if the Rebbe said it, a Rebbe, a Tzadik, you know, the previous Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, or someone related the story to to to. to uh, because we try to be as authentic as we can in these classes. I am saying this is a story that is related, traditional, handed down by Hasidim. But it says a very powerful story. It says as follows, that Rav Shneer Zalman, after his release, on his way back from prison, he passed through a town. And when he came through that town, um, he asked the people, the people came out to celebrate. The Rebbe was freed. Maybe not all the Jews. Maybe some Jews were Hasidim, some weren't. But the Hasidim definitely came out with a bottle of, 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 of mashke, of l'chaim, and they had a good time. They sang, they danced, they made somersaults. They didn't know what to do with themselves. They were very besimcha. The Rebbe is free. And the Rebbe was liberated. The Rebbe said to them, the Balatanya said to the Hasidim, he said, I owe you something, and therefore I, want to, I owe the people in this town something. I want to reward you. You can pick your reward. I can either tell you Hasidus, I am willing to speak Hasidus, give you new teachings, or I can tell you a story. One of the two. You're not getting both. One of the two. Now Hasidus is the best, but a story is even better, right? So the people said, let's have a story. Why did the Alter Rebbe owe the people in this city a sto- something? The reason was because on the way going, the coach that was taking him from Liozhna to Petersburg, so f- quite a far journey. The coach, the black infamous coach, that only people that were accused of the highest, of the highest uh, uh, accusation of treason, treason or the like, which he was accused for, were taken in that coach. It was like high security. Anyways, they passed by the town, and the general, the guy in charge, the highest official, the officer in charge over the whole entourage of soldiers, became very thirsty. 
And as thirsty, he needed a glass or a cup of water. So he knocked in, stopped at a house, and he knocked on the door. And a Jew came to the door. It was a Jewish home. When the Yidle, when this little Yid came out, and he's facing this uh, seven foot, six and a half foot brute Russian officer, uh, he wasn't too happy. He was terrified. And it's not the type of guy you want knocking on your door. You know it's trouble. Uh, and he asked him, what can I do for you? He said, I need a glass of water. Very happy that's all that, that all that he needed. So he ran and he got him the water, and he hoped very quickly that he would leave very fast. Anyways, the Russian officer couldn't contain himself. And he said, you know, you know I have in that wagon. And the Jew said, no. He said, you're a rabbi. Anyways, the Yid came out, and he looked through the window. He said, you want to see? Come see. He showed him. And the Alter Rebbe was sitting there looking out of the window. When he saw this, this Yid, the Alter Rebbe who can see things that we don't see, noticed and saw on his face that this individual was a Kohen. So the Alter Rebbe called him over, and he said, I want to ask you. From the window, he motioned to him. And he said to come, and I guess they let him approach. And he asked him, he said, you are a Kohen? He said, yeah. He said, I need a Birchus Kohanim. I need a, I need a blessing of a Kohen. He knew the danger that he's in. So this chassid, or chassid yid, I'm not exactly sure if he was even even a chassid, offered his blessings to a Jew in need, and he gave Birchus Kohanim. Because of that, the Alter Rebbe on the way back felt that he has to return something to the people in the city, because he, he got this tremendous, God should protect you. And he felt that that blessing played a role in his liberation. Okay, so he told the people, he said, I will tell you a story. What was the story that he told? He said as follows, that the Bolshemtov one time brought Satan down to this world. Satan. Satan himself was once forced to come down to earth. Why was the Satan forced to come down to earth? By the Bolshemtov. What happened? Because the Satan, the Bolshemtov wanted to get something from the Satan. He wanted to get a key. The Satan has in his possession a key. Which key does the Satan have? Is the key to Mashiach, the key to redemption. Givald! Why in the world does the Satan have the key to Mashiach? So the story is, the Alter Rebbe said that the, the, they, they, they gave him the key because during the time of the destruction of the second Beis Amigdash, the Satan did not want to allow them to destroy the second temple. The Satan was stopping, was getting in the way, and he didn't want to allow the destruction of the second temple. He said, what are you talking about? The Satan should have been ecstatic, so happy. That's, of course, destroying the temple. That's what he wants to do. He should have been standing and spraying kerosene and fanning the flames. No, the reason why, because he felt, he, felt, he felt, the Satan felt that he was ripped off. Why was he ripped off? Because initially, when the, when the first base of Middish was destroyed because of the sins of the Jewish people, God's wrath was provoked, and Hashem wanted to kill all the Jewish people, chas v'shal. What happened? Because of his love to Israel, overpowered, and Hashem said, let me make an exchange. Instead of killing the people, let's, let's destroy the temple, and that will be a kapara, right? A forgiveness, an atonement, instead of killing the people. And God got the Satan to agree to it that he will allow for the base of Migdash to be destroyed because Hashem has to work through the system. And if the system called for the people to be killed, he can't just do something and ignore protocol. There are certain rules and regulations that Hashem himself set up that he is also bound to conduct himself by these rules. So the Satan agreed, fine. 
But the Sultan didn't realize that the destruction of the first base of English was only for a short period for 70 years. 70 years later, they rebuilt the temple, Jews came back to Israel, and he felt that they, they cheated him. That had he known that this would have been, he would have never agreed, that this would be an exchange. So now, 400 and, and so years later, 420 years later, when it came time to destroy the second base of Migdash, he said, no way, Jose, this is not happening. You're going to do the same thing. You destroy the base of Migdash, save the Jewish people, and then you're going to rebuild it very soon. So Hashem said, nah, nah, you have nothing to worry about. It's going to take a long time. It's going to take many years. Sutton says, I don't believe you. Anyways, back and forth. Finally, Hashem said, you know what? It's in your hands. I'm giving you the key. And therefore, I cannot bring the Giyul until you agree, until you give the key. So you have it. So the key was in the hand of the Satan for a very long time. Until when? Until the Baal Shem Tev decided, being that it's his job to bring Mashiach, the teachings of Hasidus have to bring Mashiach. So he can't have Satan walking around with this key and his keychain. The Baal Shem Tev needs that key. So the Baal Shem Tev decided to bring Satan down to this world. So he did whatever he needed to do. And through mystical unions and whatever the Baal Shem Tov did, and they warned him from heaven and they said, it's very dangerous. You don't want to bring Sutton down to this world. A very, very dangerous being is not someone you want to meet in a dark alleyway. Um, but the Baal Shem Tov just ignored all the warnings and he brought the Sutton down. Now, I'm not going to describe to you because I probably my drama is not dramatic enough to be able to describe to you what exactly the scene was when the fierce, frightening Samach Mem himself came down to earth. But one thing he said to the Baal Shem Tov, he said, how dare you? How dare you, you little whatever, made out of flesh and blood, how dare you force me to come down to earth? I have never been here in earth. I haven't been here in earth. There's only three times that I came down to earth. Who gave you the right to bring me down here? How, how are you not afraid to have forced me to come down. When were the three times that he was on earth? So usually when Satan needs to get his job done, he has many henchmen. He has many operatives that work for him. Okay? Doesn't have to go there himself. But when it's a very, very crucial moment, the Satan doesn't rely on any of his agents. He needs to go himself to oversee. Like the head mafioso boss, that in a very, very important thing, he's got to go down himself to manage the operations. So in this case, when was it? By the sin of the tree of knowledge. When Adam and Chava, that moment was so crucial for all of history to derail the plan, of, of to, to, to throw the whole world into chaos, Satan himself came down, as the Medrash says, and was riding on the snake. The Samach Mem was riding on the snake like a person riding on a horse. And he came and he tempted Chava. Second time Satan came down to this world was by the sin of the golden calf. After the Jews received the Torah, we were ready for Mashiach, and he, did, and he needed to ruin it again, and therefore again he didn't trust anybody, he came himself down. The third time Satan himself came down to the world was to destroy the first temple. Three times. So the Satan said, how are you little, who are you, man of flesh and blood, to bring me down? And, the, and how are you not afraid of me? And the Balshemta said, my father taught me not to be afraid of anybody but God himself. So I'm, uh, I don't fear you. Now give me the key. Anyways, exactly how, what, when, and when it went down, I don't know. But the Alter Rebbe said then that the Baal Shem Tov wrestled the key out from the Satan. And the key, the key, and he, the Baal Shem Tov took the key. So what is this key? Obviously it's not a physical key. 
it's a mystical name of God or something, whatever this, whatever this key is. But Hasidim said, and that's the story the Alter Rebbe said, and then he continued on. Hasidim say, now who these Hasidim are, not people like me and you who are just making a Baba Mises. Obviously these were great, great, great Sadiqim and great people who had great knowledge. These are not the... And they said that this key that the Baal Shem Tov wrestled away from the Satan to bring Mashiach was the Nishama of Rav Shnir Zalman of Liadi that was necessary to come to the world to introduce the teachings of Hasidus in a way that these godly ideas are understandable by human minds so that we can slowly but surely bring holiness and godliness to permeate the world through these teachings Mashiach can come so this was that Nisham so this is all illustrating very strongly that Mashiach, that Hasidus is here and the holiday of the 19th of Kislev is leading right up to the coming of Mashiach Tzadkenu and therefore, if there's any day that is an appropriate day for an advance in the coming of Mashiach, it's the 19th of Kislev. So now, let's see what, what, how this relates to what's going on now. So, as I mentioned earlier, that I want to base this on a talk that the Lubavitcher Rebbe gave 25 years ago. At that time, mysteriously, the Rebbe spoke about France. And this is what we discussed last year, if you remember. A whole discussion about France. How the Jewish people have a job to elevate and, and purify all of creation and prepare the entire world for the great godly revelation that's going to happen when Mashiach comes. It is for that purpose that the Jewish people were scattered across the world. Hashem spread the Jewish people amongst the nations so that we should make converts. And in the Hasidic interpretation, converts don't mean just physical converts, although it means that as well, but that we only have very few, not that many. It means that when Jews spread out all over the world and practice their Yiddishkeit, study Torah, do mitzvahs, and they use the resources of any every given country, what they're doing is they're causing a transformation. They're taking the energy out from the klipa and they're funneling that energy into Kedusha or in the more mystical uh, 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 terminology of Kabbalah, that, that's called elevating the sparks of holiness. There are sparks of Kedusha, which means there's a spark of Hashem that is embedded in every creature and in every being, and of course in every country and in every culture, in every language, and every people. And, and that is initially in an unholy state. The 70 nations are in an unholy state. And that needs to be rectified through the Jewish people. Now there's two ways to accomplish that. Initially when the Jewish people were um, in the good, good, good old days, when we had a Beis HaMikdash, we, we were also involved in elevating sparks. We were, always a light on, we were always a light on to the nation. It was never a moment that we were just busy with our own absorption. Maybe the 40 years that we were in the desert, you can say. But after that, our work right away began to transform the world. And even in the 40 years in the desert, we know the reason they were traveling in the desert, because the source of all the klipa, of all the unholiness, is in the desert. And when they traveled with the Aron, with the Ark, with the Luchos, with Moshe Rabbeinu, with Aaron, with 600,000 root souls, when they marched through the desert, they, for, they, they did a very, they decimated the forces of evil. They crushed them. How do we know that? Every time they traveled, we say it in Davening. When the Aron traveled, 
Vayomer Moshe, Moshe says, Kuma Hashem, get up God, vayafutu oivecha, may your enemies disperse. Who are the enemies? There weren't any enemies there. There were a few times in the beginning and the end of the 40 years they had enemies. There were no enemies. Rashi says it was the snakes and scorpions that were killed. Who are these snakes and scorpions? Physical manifestations of extreme powerful klipot, powerful forces of evil that are the source of the various 70 nations. So by the time we, the Jewish people, have to deal with these nations a thousand, two thousand years later, they are much weaker already because in the Midbar, we've already taken them on with the superpower of the Jewish people, with all that nuclear power, we broke and weakened them. Had Moshe Rabbeinu not weakened them with all the Jewish people in the Midbar, they would be formidable, they would be impossible to deal with. Okay? Fine. But then we moved into Eretz Yisrael, and we did not, we, Jews lived in one place. So how can we influence the world? So we influenced the world long range, at a, at a, at a, at a, at a long distance. Which means... We created so much Kedusha in Eretz Yisrael, and that Kedusha served as a powerful, powerful universal magnet. And people from across the world would come to the land of Israel to see many people converted from the nations. Especially at the peak and at the height of that time was when the days of Shlomo HaMelech. When King Solomon, when Shlomo HaMelech reigned in the world, it was the highest time of divine manifestation. Interesting idea, do you know why? Shlomo HaMelech is the 15th generation from Avram Avinu. And the, how long does it take for the moon to become filled with light from the sun? 15 days. So 15 generations, beginning with Avram, when the moon, which represents the world, starts receiving the light from the sun, which is God. 15 days, increase, increase, increase. The 15th day, this was at its peak. And that's why Shlomo HaMelech's wisdom was recognized across the entire world. And we had no enemies. All the enemies were subdued. There was no wars. The entire world was in awe of the mighty power of Shlomo HaMelech. And it says in the Pasuk, Vayeshev Shlomo al Kisei Hashem. That Shlomo HaMelech was sitting on God's throne, which means the Medrash says, Just like God rules in the, in the upper realms and in the lower realms, so Shlomo HaMelech rules in the upper realms and in the, in the end. That means he controlled all of existence. Why? Because he was totally surrendered to God and God's kingship came through him. That's the story. Don't ask me the question, Shlomo sinned with the thousand... Okay, that we don't understand what that means. But in general, he was a very holy, holy tzaddik who was a conduit for God's kingdom in this world. The power of Kedusha was so, so powerful and so strong, it influenced the world. All the way to Ethiopia, where the queen of Ethiopia came down because she heard of his wisdom and she was drawn to him. That's all great. However, even though it was good, the problem with that kind of rectification is that it's not so thorough. Even though you're influencing... When you're influencing something from a great distance, you're influencing it from the outside, you're not permeating it into its internal, you're not causing an internalized change. It's like people hear about something, they get excited. But to really, really transform and change, you have to get up and close with something. You have to understand it, you have to learn it, you have to digest it. And when we're living in Eretz Yisrael, the nations in the world can hear about the holiness, they can hear something is going on, they can sense maybe that Kedusha, but it's not doing a total metamorphosis in the people and in that nation to become more godly and become more refined and more um, 
uh, 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 sensitive to holiness. It's not doing it. It's doing it in a very external and externally. We know the ultimate way to influence. It's in everything. If you want to have success in business and you're trying to do business in a certain place, if you're trying to do the business long distance, you're running a store long distance, and you yourself don't move into that town and in that place, it's not going to be as successful as when you yourself go there. When you go there and you settle in the place, you get to know the neighborhood. Imagine if you open a store. So there are, that's why, you know, good companies, when they open up many stores, what's the chachma? Just, it's just occurring to me right now. What's the chachma of a franchise? Is that, you know, why shouldn't the company have the company run all the stores? Because then, then the guy who really cares is who? Is the owner. And he can't be in all these places at one time. So when you, it's not your thing and you're operating someone else's thing you, and the guy's trying to manage from a long distance, you can't manage something really and have a true influence. It's when you let, so therefore what's the idea of a franchise? You let the company be bought kind of, you partner up with a person who lives in that town, understands the nature and the, the style and the cultural type of the, 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 the type that these people are and based on that you can market and you can serve, and you can do, and you can thereby build your business in a much deeper and influence the 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 the, the, the clients and the buyers in a way that they need to be influenced. The, the, you know, the, the people doing business with, with 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 Italians is different than doing business with Ukrainians. Different type of people. So the be, an ability to reach them, and of course to educate them and to transform them, requires um, people to be on site not at distance. So therefore, what did God do? He sent the Jewish people out across the world. And here you find an interesting thing. When the Galos began, and this is why it's connected to this week's Parsha too, because it's a Parsha class and I, I didn't make the connection, but it is connected because this is the first time the Jewish people this week, this week begins the process of taking the Jewish family from Eretz Yisrael and relocating them into Egypt. That's the first Galut. Golos, why is that the first exile? Because now is the chance, now is the time we begin that avoda of purifying the world. Yosef went down to Mitzrayim. Yosef was the leader. He leads the Jewish people down uh, to Egypt. And what do we know? The Jewish people were there for 210 years and they transformed Egypt. They took out all the sparks. Now, I do want to say an interesting thing. Since it was, be- we spoke about this many times, but since it was before the giving of the Torah, we didn't have an ability to transform the actual country of Egypt to become a holy place, what we were able to do in Egypt was to empty Egypt from its vitality and its energy, take its godly life force that was inside of it and trap, redeem it, and bring it into, go, into holiness. That was the idea of taking all the rich riches and all the wealth and all the gold of Egypt, and it became Jewish money, which later went into building a temple for God, into a mishkan, and all the other good things that the Jewish people did with that, to serve their creator with that money. Initially, that money was used to build temples for all the gods. So you see a transformation. But the way we did it was, in a sense, we, we took all the wealth away from Egypt, and Egypt crumbled. It's very, very different in what's called, that people make this mistake, they think that rectifying and elevating sparks means robbing the world from its life. Is that the Jews go through places, take out all the money, take out everything and run away, and then the place collapses. That's not what God wants. That's not the purpose. The whole world has to become. After, the reason in Egypt we didn't have the power to do that was because we didn't have the Torah yet. After the giving of the Torah, our ability is when we elevate a spark, it means 
We reveal the spark in any given entity where that spark is now dominating the situation with that person or that country or that uh, entity becomes something that displays holiness and godliness. In order for us to achieve this, 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 this job, so again, we couldn't stay in Eretz Yisrael. We needed to move out to various places, to various different posts. But for the first 1,500 years of Jewish exile, we basically were, 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 we were scattered, but we weren't scattered across the globe. We had a few major outposts where Jews were. Jews were in Spain, Jews were here, they were in, in some of the Arab countries, in some, of the, uh, in some of the European countries, but the places that we were were few. And in those countries, of course, we were doing that which we needed to do in terms of transformation. But we were not reaching the entire globe, the entire world. Then, this is what the Rebbe spoke on that, on that Shabbos, going back to that, he says, as we were getting closer to Mashiach, the time has come for us to advance and make a major conquest of the entire globe. And for that reason, Jews had to reach everywhere across the world. And then he introduces an interesting phenomenon. And the phenomenon that he introduces is America, and the idea that he refers to it as, and it's a terminology that was coined by the first Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi, whose liberation we were celebrating this week, where he spoke of America when America was, uh, had its, its uh, war of, um, had its uh, war of independence and declaration of independence in America. At that time, uh, I think it was related to that, where the Alter Rebbe said that America is Chatsi Kadur Hatachton. What that means is it's the other side of, it's the lower half of the hemisphere. Meaning to say, what that means is that when God came down on Sinai and Hashem came down to give the Torah, the mere presence of God on the world had a powerful, powerful influence on the purification of the world. The world became purified and purified and more sensitive to Kedusha. Even though the, the revelation of God lasted only for maybe an hour or so, and then God went back to heaven. And in generally we say that the world reverted back to its unholiness, and that's why Hashem said, now you, He gave us the job to fix it. But definitely God being in this world had an impact on the world. But here's the Chiddush of the Alter Rebbe, which is a very big Chiddush. He says that the half of the globe in where the Torah was given was impacted to a greater degree than the other side of the globe. The other side had less impact by that revelation. Which means that it's much tougher to elevate it and to purify it. It means the further you go from Eretz Yisrael, physically, geographically, the tougher the klipa is. The harder it is for that place to become a place of holiness, the more resistant it is. It's physically far because spiritually it is far. Fine. In the last years, the Rebbe is pointing out in this talk, he says, guess what? Jews have come across the entire globe, and everywhere in the world, there is Yiddishkeit, some communities very small, some communities larger, there are shuls everywhere, Jews are practicing Yiddishkeit across the globe, that is an indication that we've completed the work. Because, and, and it's interesting, he points out a powerful idea. You realize that German Jews practice their Yiddishkeit with, with certain cultural um, style that Yekis have, that Germans have, punctuality. 
and they introduce that into their Jewish experience. In their life as general, German Jews are very different than Russian Jews. And a Jew, by his very definition, is a servant of God. So when you take certain Ger- German um, character traits, and you're living your especially when you're speaking Torah in that language, and then you're using those strengths, every country has qualities, and you use those strengths to spread, to teach, to practice your Yiddishkeit, and the fact that Minyan always starts in time in Germany, because this is Yaki land, then guess what? That, that, that's an element, that's, a, that's an honor for God. Which you're not going to get in a Russian shul, where it's, everything is going to be half an hour late. Because just, just the way the Russians are, they don't have that punctuality of the Germans. So there's a certain beauty in the observance of the of the Yakisha Yidin, that you don't have another place. That means you're taking the qualities of what make up the, the klippa of Germany and turning that into Kedush. And the same is in the foods that are eaten. You think Jews ate gefilte fish 3,000 years ago? They didn't. It became something that happened in Poland. And it becomes Machali Shabbos. Yes, it's holy. It becomes the traditional food for Shabbos. Now it's sushi. It's a whole different beer. It's a whole different elevation. <laughs> These are things that change. The, the, whatever we can integrate, every country, every place, creates their own Jewish observance. Again, as long, we're not allowed to adapt where Torah and Allah doesn't allow us to adapt. That's, that means it is influencing us. But wherever halacha does not tell us, us something is forbidden, naturally when we live in a certain place, we pick up on certain on certain qualities, the Russian Jews were very stubborn because Ruski is very is, is the Russians are stubborn people. So therefore, the Russians Jews were Akshanim, and you saw the mysterious nefesh that they had in Stalin's days for seventy years to keep Yiddishkeit, even though it was dangerous. They had to fight like that was because of that stubborn nature of the Russian Jews. America is all about marketing, advertisement, getting it's all. Psh, and guess what? That's a quality that we use today here in America. Everybody's trying to catch you. Man Yisrael is always trying to catch you with every kind of marketing to get you to come to a class, to come to a concert, to come to a thing. We're using American things and integrating that into our Jewish experience. That is the rectification of the world. We steal the soul, so to speak, of that country, convert it, transform it, and then that entire country becomes a place for Kedusha. Now, France, and here's where, I, this is what we spoke about last year, and I want to repeat it again. And this is where the Rebbe had made it very interesting. The Lubavitch Rebbe made very strong emphasis on France. He says that France represented a very, very dark klipa, a very, very dark force of that was a force against Kedusha stronger than anything else. See? Uh, we know, and, 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 and he puts it in the his, historical concept, the historical development of Hasidut, where Hasidus comes to the world and he's showing it's the way Hasidus handled France. And that is that in the days of Rabshinir Zalman of Liadi, it was the time when there was the great war between Napoleon. Napoleon was advancing and wanted to conquer all of Europe. Um, and when he was um, ready to advance on Russia, and during that war, tzaddikim took sides, Hasidic tzaddikim, big tzaddikim, took various different sides in that, in that war. Rabbi Shneir Zalman of Liadi was a very, very, very strong um, advocate for the Tsar, for Russia, and he wanted the Russians to win that war and Napoleon should be defeated. Other tzaddikim um, sided with Napoleon. 
Um, I think it was the Kajnitza Magid that was very, very strong. Or Remendel of Rimenovs. It's different opinions of who it was, but I, it was uh, the Kajnitza Magid that wanted very strong Napoleon should win. The, argues that these, the argument that these Sadiqim had was that um, the Balatanya, at least on his end, I haven't seen any writings written directly by the other Tzadikim. Um, some Tzadikim felt that if Napoleon would win, then Moshiach would come very quickly, even though it would cost the Jewish people a lot of blood. And uh, I think Remendel Rimenov said that there should be rivers of blood flowing from Pristiv to Rimenov. And he doesn't care. Let there be rivers of blood, but we got to bring Mashiach now. We can't delay. It must happen now. It, the Golis is too long. And in that sense, he was supporting Napoleon. Um, others believed, again, it seems like, that if Napoleon will win, it will be good for the Jewish people because Napoleon was removing religious oppression. He stood for, he was part and a product of the French Revolution, in which the whole modern day psychology and the way governments are run is that the governments are run by the people and it's not by the monarchy, it's not by the king who controls everything. The French Revolution was the entire foundation for modern day life as it is, which might seem like it was, it's a phenomenal thing. And in the long run, yes, it is a good thing. But immediately it came with a very, very great danger. The danger that it came along with it was that the 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 um, the along with freeing people from the oppression of the king, along with that came freeing the people from the oppression of the church. You see, the king and church were very strongly intertwined with each other. And therefore, when people felt that you're removing the yoke of the king, it meant a license to remove the yoke of religion, which included the yoke of God. And we're free to do whatever we want. And it brought a great... Um, it brought a powerful surge of, of heresy, of, of um, atheism, and disbelief in God, and it dropped the moral standards that people had in regards to, which generally, even in Gentiles, there was a fear of God and the like, where people lived, he completely abolished all of that. Ripshner Zalman of Liadi felt that if Napoleon would win, he would bring that freedom also into Eastern Europe to the, to, the, to the Russian and European Polish Jews. And being that they would be given freedom so quickly and, so, and they wouldn't be able to adapt to it, this, it would cause that same effect on the Jewish people. That even if physically, maybe, materially, their lives would become better, but spiritually it would be devastating because the hearts of the Jewish people would go estranged from God. The sudden sense of freedom and liberty from the oppression of the authority would also throw off the... Now, America, and I made this distinction last year when we spoke, is, was also built on the ideas of liberty for the individual, but there was a fundamental difference. Rav Zalman writes in a letter that Napoleon is a very, very arrogant human being who believes that all of success is in his hands. And therefore, he is a horrific clipper. He's someone who's full of himself, de- denies God completely, believes that all the power is in his hands to do whatever he wants. America was established on a belief in, a God, in Hashem, and that God gives you liberty, and Hashem is the one. It wasn't freeing from religion, yes, it was freeing from religious oppression that you can't force your religion upon me and I can worship and serve as I feel fit. But 
It's based on a belief on one God. What gives you your rights? That's the constitution. What gives you your rights as an individual to life, to expression, to so forth? God gives you those, li- those rights. And, that's, and that was very different. So America is built on a foundation of holiness. Um, the, the French Revolution came from a very, very unholy place. And this, the, the Rav Shneur Zalman felt, was such a threat and such a dangerous klipa that he did not want to live under Napoleon's power even for a minute. Because you realize Napoleon as a human being down here is a representative of the spiritual. Like last, year, last week we saw that Esau has an angel above. That's the power behind Esau. Following? Esau has an angel above. That's the power. And Yaakov struggled with the angel. Napoleon also has an angel above. And that's the French klipa. And this was the worst of the worst. The most, the, most, the most fiercest power against holiness and against godliness was the French. First of all, you should know that for th- thousands of years, if you look in the book Shevet HaLevi, um, I think it's called Shevet HaLevi, and there's a, there's a Sefer Shalshu Shevet HaLevi from Rabbi Wozner, but I think it's Shevet something, but it could be, maybe it's not Shevet HaLevi, Shevet, Shevet Yehuda maybe. It's a book that, 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 that chronicles the, the, the history of persecution of the Jewish people. And the descriptions of the suffering of the Jews that in France and the pogroms and the persecutions was terrible. In many ways worse, the anti-Semitism goes, runs deep, 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 deep in the French culture from way back then. Then later, Klippa is Klippa. It will manifest in different faces. It became also this force of freedom which was going to serve as a power to get the Jewish people to seduce them away from their ways, from, their, from, from religious observance, from, from, uh, from tradition and the like. So the, the Alter Rebbe felt that, if Polian, that Napoleon and the, 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 his son, the Mittler Rebbe, writes how nervous his father got when Napoleon was advancing, how all day long he was saying to Hillim and crying and pleading with God to have mercy, not to allow... In the end, the Alter Rebbe promised and made an oath. He mamish took a shvua. That's what the son writes. That Napoleon is going to be defeated. He knew. I guess he fig- he connected in heaven. That in the end, he said, if he makes the mistake, if he is so arrogant that he makes the mistake to attack Russia, he's going to have a massive defeat. And in the beginning, Napoleon was moving into Russia, far, far, winning battle after battle. But in the end, that served as his great, great defeat. So that's what he writes. And it's interesting, in these letters, the, the Mittler Rebbe, the son of Ripshner Zalm, you can look in these letters today, it's, it's printed. He writes that the Russian Tsar is the total opposite. These are deeply religious people who believe, now obviously the Alter Rebbe himself was in jail under the Russians. These were not tzaddikim. But yet, deeply religious people who believe that success in war comes only from God and they're very humble. Amazing statement about the Russian Tsar, Tsar, I don't know who the guy was then, versus, versus Napoleon. But what do you see? What's the depth over here? The depth over here is, take a look how, how powerful Klippa is. Klippa is so strong that at Tzaddik like Rabshneer Zalman of Liyavi, a prince, a prince of holiness, such a power has to be on the run. He can't even be, he doesn't want to be under that energy, under that angel for a day. He can't live, he can't breathe that oxygen. It, the stench is so bad that he cannot be there. We don't feel it, he felt it. 
He cannot be under the umbrella of Napoleon even for a day, and he's on the run. Now the Lubavitcher Rebbe says, take a look, let's take a look at, fast forward generations later. As a result of the Hasidic revival, and Jews not only having Torah and mitzvahs, but Jews learning Torah and doing mitzvahs with enthusiastic vigor that comes from the spreading of Hasidus across Europe. And thousands of Jews began to experience mitzvahs with love of Hashem and fear of God. And Shabbos was full of song and singing and dancing and energy. People don't realize what Hasidus did. It mamish brought vigor and energy. and tr- it, it brought life to all of Europe, to every- The mitzvahs that were done now are so much more powerful. We sped up the purification of the world. Speeding it up much, much faster. And now the world starts thinning out. The klipa becomes thinner and thinner. By the time the fourth generation of Chabad Hasidism, the fourth Rebbe, Reb Shmuel, went to France. He was the first Rebbe that left Russia. Generally the the Chabad Rebbe at least stayed in Russia. And that was their seat from where they influenced and in, in the fourth Rebbe, Reb Shmuel went to France and he made balei tshuvas. I know of one story where he went into a bar, a casino actually, and he went over to a, a, a Jew and he tapped him on the shoulder and he said, Rebyid, wine that a Gentile touches contaminates the mind and the heart. And he left. Anyways, that Jew became a Balchuva. A whole story. So he went into the... F- into the into the power into the den of the klipa and began breaking it. Then he mentions that many of the rabbeim spoke dafka in French. They spoke French. Why? It was all in order to begin that process of purification. The fifth Chabad Rebbe of Shalom Dov Ber went many times to visit Paris, France, for health reasons. And when he was there, he conceived his deepest writings of Hasidus. Now, I don't know if a, people, a lot of the listenership is not familiar, but Chabad Hasidus is unbelievably deep, rich with the deepest esoteric and most powerful ideas, Kabbalistic ideas explained that the human mind can explain. But from all those teachings, the, the ones that are the most um, elaborate and explains are from the fifth Chabad Rebbe, Reb Sholem Dev Ber. And from his Maimarim, the, 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 the greatest of, of, of them, you can say, the classic of classics, is one called Tafresh Ayin Beis, Bishasha Ekdimu. That mimer, which spans three fat books, okay, it's like hundreds of pages long, that long discourse, which was given over over many years, its idea, the kernel of the idea behind it was conceived in, in France, which is amazing. And a lot of it was written over there. Then the next Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, spent, went quite a few times, and then the, Re, the Lubavitch Rebbe says an interesting thing, and he sent members of his family to live there. Which he says, remember, he doesn't say who the members are, but it meant this, the Lubavitch Rebbe himself and his wife went to live in France. And he says it's the first time they went there and they settled. They actually lived there for eight years. This is right in the beginning before the Holocaust. They lived in France for eight years. And what happened when they lived there? The Rebbe seems to imply very strongly they did some serious groundwork. They did some serious purification. Like people think a tzaddik lives somewhere, goes somewhere, whatever. He goes there, these serious purifications that are being done. Deep, deep, deep klipas are being broken. 
and forces are transforming. I'll tell you a quick story, uh, just that people get an idea what, what it means when a tzaddik lives somewhere. There was a person in Eretz Yisrael, this is just such a fascinating story. Uh, there was a person in Eretz Yisrael who was, you know, Chabadnikis go around and try to get Jews to do mitzvahs. So there was a, Jew, there was a, a guy living in Yerushalayim and he was going through a, a, a business area in the outside, I don't know which neighborhood in Yerushalayim, and generally a secular area. And he was going from office to office, knocking in Friday afternoon, asking people if they put on tefillin. At one place, a door opens up, and it's a fellow with a long beard, long pace, with a, with a talus cotton outside. Took one look, you see he's a breast of a chazit. So the, the Chabadnik says to him, sorry, you know, good Shabbos, have a wonderful Shabbos. And he knows this guy puts on tefillin, he doesn't have to ask him to put on tefillin. So the guy calls him back, and he says, hey, 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 Habibi, come back. So he comes back, he says, you're Chabadnik, yeah? He says, okay. he says Whom, you're Balchuva. He says, he says, Mi Asalacha Balchuva, who made you a Balchuva? So he said, Shluchei uh, HaRebbe, the Shluchim, you know, I don't know, somewhere he, someone got to him and made him a Balchuva. He says, yeah, Ata, you're a, you are a Balchuva of a Shliach, I am a Balchuva of the Rebbe himself. He says, Paul, come here, I'll tell you the story. This is a crazy story, but it's a true story. What happened was that this guy is a, French, Frenchy, born in France, to parents that were totally not religious. The grandfather didn't even go to shul on Yom Kippur. So we're talking about a three generations already disconnect. Okay? Very far. And he grew older, no, no connection to Judaism, was dating and um, a, a, a French girl, a Gentile girl. And, uh, he's gone. And, and, they, and, they were gonna, and they set the date for them to get married, and they were already living together. Looking for a place to live, they looked around for apartments and they found an apartment and they moved into this house. Okay? It was in an apartment building, certain apartment, they moved in over there. He walks in together with her, okay, him and his girlfriend. They walk into the house and they put down their valises and their suitcases to start unpacking. Okay, they just signed the contract, they move in, they're in. When suddenly, he doesn't know, he can't explain, he doesn't know what happened, he receives a very, a, a panic attack. Mamish, he gets a panic attack, and he starts trembling, and he doesn't know what to do. So first he's trying, he takes a he gets a drink, and he's running back and forth, and it's just getting stronger and stronger and stronger, that he, he bolted out of the apartment, because he didn't know what to do with himself, and he left her in the apartment, and went running. And he's running down like a total lunatic, the streets of Paris. Running down the streets, not knowing what to do. And finally, after a while, for running out of breath, he sees a shul. So for some reason, he goes running, and he doesn't know why, he runs into the shul. And they were ready to daven mincha. And they see this guy, looks like a madman, the way he came in. So someone went over and offered him a siddur, and he didn't even know how to read it or what, and he took it, he sat down. They finished mincha, he hung around, and afterwards he left. He was still shaking, so he's still running back and forth in the streets of... Then finally, he calms down a little bit, he goes back to the apartment. Mysteriously, and again, he can't explain why. He goes, he takes his girlfriend's suitcases, he picks it up, puts it out outside the door, and he tells her, lady, get out of here. She says, what do you mean? He says, get out of here and never come back again. Anyway, she can't believe it. She's crying. She's back. He says, I don't want to see you ever again. Leave now. Okay, he slams the door shut. I guess she was banging, crying, zetzing for the... He didn't answer and finally she left. Again, this happened just out of nowhere. All right. 
He stays in the apartments for a few, for two, three weeks, but he's restless. He can't sleep at night. He can't come to himself. Something is bothering him that he doesn't know what. And he decides that he has to go to Israel. He has to go to Israel. So, but he promised he signed a contract on this apartment and he had signed a lease in which he has to, and he laid out and he put, a, he put a deposit. So he goes to speak to the landlord. In the end, I think he couldn't get his money back, but it was bothering so much that he forfeited the money and he just picked himself up and went to Israel. Somehow, I don't know exactly how, but he ends up in Tzvas, meets up with Breslover Hasidim, becomes a Breslover Balchuva. He's living in Tzvas. When people are asking him, what happened to you? What happened to you? What changed your your life? What, how did you become a Balchuva? Everybody has a story. What's your story? He says, I was embarrassed to say anything because literally I would sound like a total Meshuggah because he doesn't know what happened. It was one day a craze went into his head and this is where he ended up. One day he's walking down the street in Svas and he sees leaflets on the floor. He picks up the leaflet and it says that tonight there's going to be a lecture for Doivre Tzarfatit, for French-speaking people, in a certain shul or in a house in in, in Tzvat and that shul okay, and he's looking at it and on the advertisement there's a picture what's the subject? the subject is someone who's going to say the story and the history of the Lubavitcher Rebbe in his years in France the picture that they put on it to illustrate it is a building that looked very familiar to him and it has the address on it and he sees that this is the address where he lived and he realized that this is the apartment that he had moved exactly in the apartment where the Rebbe lived. I don't know for how many years he lived in that apartment, but that was one of the places where he lived the whole time where he lived. So when he came in with his girlfriend who wasn't Jewish, the apartment itself couldn't spit her out. And she was thrown out, Mamish. And he was restless. Tuli ran to Eretz Yisrael and he became a Baal so he says to him, he says, you became a, uh, someone made you a Baal one of the eight, one of the shluchim. Me, it was the Rebbe himself that influenced me. It's very powerful. That tzaddik is unbelievable. The effect that he has on the physical place itself is, 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 uh, is, 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 is. So therefore, after all of this, France has reached a point where the, oh, the ultimate transformation of something, now let me hold for a second, the ultimate Let's, let's, let's for a second stop. We mentioned earlier that our, pro, our work is to refine the world, refine the world, refine the world until all of creation is revealed in it, the unity of God. Until you can see Hashem displayed in the entire world. Now it's interesting, at which point in history do you start realizing what the purpose of creation is? At which point do you realize? So just across the street from me, over here on La Brea, they're now building a big building. And they're halfway up in the construction. And for, for, for the longest time, they had the tractors where they were digging a big hole. I'm not a, that curious, especially when, you know, I never really was, you know, what are they building? I would walk by it every day, every day whatever, drive by it. And, but I had no idea what they're building. But then when the building starts going up, now you can tell they're building a big garage, a car garage. And when do you know it? When the building is reaching a certain a certain level of completion, or at least to a certain degree, you could start seeing what's going on. You see, for thousands of years, even though we had Torah and Mitzvahs, we didn't have a clear vision of what the project is all about. What is it all about? People thought that the project is all about reaching heaven. The project is all about Olam Haba. The project is all about the afterlife. I'm talking about people. I'm talking about even in Sfarim. That's the, that's, Hasidus came and turned it around, you know, because the first person who opened up his eyes and had the messianic view and saw 
that God and the world are really one, and it's not two entities, that's the Balshemtiv. The Balshemtiv was the first person who opened his eye because the world reached a certain purification. Now you can have a human being in here and can see the picture, can see what it is that the, that the, that 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 the, that, the, that, the, that a tree is not a tree and a bird is not a bird. And a, and a lake is not a lake, and a stream is not a stream, and a stone is not a stone, but they're nothing more than God manifesting in all these things. And everything is, every single thing in the world is nothing other than God Himself. And the Abishter Himself. Now, the Balshemtav, however, saw this, and he was able to convey it to Jews, but he wasn't, but it was not conceivable in our minds. The Balshemtiv had a vision and he was able to share that vision with other people and Jews were able to perceive it in their amuna, not in their intellect, not in their understanding. The next stage came when two generations later Rav Shneer Zalman of Liadi started taking that very essence of the Balshemtiv's teaching of God's unity but he started explaining to us intellectually. In other words, that our mind should be, a human mind should be able to see and understand how Enoid Movadoid is nothing but God. That in our minds we should see it, not only in our faith. Which means that's already a deeper purification. That the human condition itself, our intellect, our thinking, our minds can conceive. That means that godliness is already becoming so much real, so much truer in the world. The klipa has, this, has gotten so thin that even with our human faculties and abilities, we can redefine creation and see in the world that that's Enoid Movade. However, as much as we can see it in the world, the Alter Rebbe said when they asked him, when is Mashiach coming? He said a powerful statement. You know what he said? When, it said, when you'll, read it, you'll read about it in the newspapers. So people think it's a joke, right? Yeah, you're looking at it. You want to know? Look, you'll find it in the newspaper. The Rebbe was saying something very deep. What he was saying is, it's not enough that me and Hasidim like me, who, who, who are learning esoteric teachings, who daven 16 hours a day, can perceive this unity in their minds. Because Mashiach is Mashiach for every for every John Shmo in the world, Mashiach is God revealing Himself. Even people that are physical, flesh, people whose identity is not spirituality, they're physical. And these physical be, be, beings, yes, every John Doe in the, in, the, in the street, on the newspaper, is telling you Mashiach. When you see Achtos Hashem, not in the Sefer, when you see it in the world. Okay? Well, that was still going to take some work. That was still going to take some work. So they're going back to what the Rebbe said about France. He says that the ultimate rectification of a place is when that place itself, not only do you bring Torah and Yiddishkeit in that place, but that place itself can build up institutions and build up communities where they become self-sufficient and they don't need anymore someone to teach them, but they produce holiness and godliness and they have their own that's a sign that you've completely transformed it in the inside and he says in the last again as I mentioned the, the, the whole Fabrengen was a very big shock because why did the Rebbe suddenly start talking about France and he's talking all about this and saying that the word an amazing thing he says being that France was the lowest klipa that the that the biggest tzaddikim were terrified from take a look seven years seven generations later that, f- that there's so much Yiddishkeit flourishing, so many yeshivas, so many chedarim with children, and books are printed. And more than that, there are people who are machaber svarim, that's what he says, people that make svarim, 
And those Svarim are learned by Yidin and Yerushalayim. It doesn't say exactly that, but in Jews and other places. Imagine Yidin and Yerushalayim learning, learning, and getting insight from a Jew who paid a safer living in France. That means that they themselves become a fountain of holiness, not just a recipient. That's the ultimate transformation. Now he says, that kind of, tra- but here this is very deep. In order for that kind of deep transformation to happen, total transformation and metamorphosis in the lowest place of the world, you can't do that with godly light. God, see, light, no matter what kind of light it is, light, in order to be able to, see, even if a light is very powerful and it can go everywhere, but in order to be able to perceive the light, you have to, have, you have to be a keli, you have to have eyes. Only with the right vehicle, only if you have the right vessel can you see light. So you need eyes to see. Which means that light has certain re- limitations. A place that is more sensitive to light can receive the light. Places that are very coarse can't receive the light. The ability to be able to go to the darkest place and transform that place that it itself should become holy from within can only come when we reveal not the light of God in the world, but we reveal the essence of God. Once we uncover God's essence, God's essence is the essence of everything. God's essence is the essence of Williamsburg in exactly the same way God's essence is the essence of Paris. As impure Paris is, and as holy as Williamsburg is, it's the same divine essence that's at the essence root of giving existence to that and giving existence to Williamsburg. Giving existence to Borough Park and Lakewood, Muncie and Pnei Barak and Mesha Arim, and also to Paris and even Vegas. Right? The ultimate essence of God. So to transform things so low it only comes by the revelation of the essence, which the revelations of the essence is being revealed dafka in the later generations as we, as we, as we get closer to Mashiach. <coughs> Therefore, he concluded, and I'm going to bring this all to something so fantastic in a moment. Therefore, he concluded that the word, in, in the Hebrew word for France is tsarfas. And tsarfat, tsarfat, right? Tsarfat comes from the word, and Tsarfat is, is spoken about in the Haftorah of last week, which it says, like the end of Gullus, it says Jews will come back from France. Tsarfat. That's what it says in the Haftorah last week, when it speaks about the rectification of Esau. It says Jews will come back from Tsarfat. Jews that began in Tsarfat, it mentions Spain and Tsarfat. Tsarfat comes from the word Tsiruf. Tsiruf means rectification, refinement. How do we know we completed the refinement of the world? How do we know? When we've find that that sarfas has so much Yiddishkeit in it, that's a sign. Now it's interesting, so you wonder, but hold it. Jews are being running away from France. They're leaving it. That could be because the work has been done already. Once the work has been done, the Jews are, can go there. So that doesn't mean that, as we said, it's not like Mitzrayim, that Mitzrayim is devastated. But we're not, the Jewish people are going to come back to Israel in the end. We're not going to stay in all the countries. All those countries are going to be receptacles for light, receiving light, but we don't have to stay there. We can go back to where we belong in our home. But that could be why they're leaving, but then again, he doesn't say that. That's what I'm saying. And he says also the words tsarfas is also the same words as ufaratsta, which means you will spread out, which is the ultimate expansion and powerful light of Mashiach that was the indication of Mashiach's light in the world when it's coming even from a place like France. Fine. This discussion was said 25 years. And he said, oh, let me just say one very important idea. It required that the source of Hasidut, of Hasidus, should leave Russia and travel and come to the lower hemisphere 
And that's what happened. All the major Torah centers in Europe moved over to America. And that power, especially the, found, the teachers of Hasidus, and he's talking about himself there as well, even though he doesn't say it open, he says about his father-in-law, moved to New York and opened the center in the lower half to spread Yiddishkeit to the entire world, as it is well known that from that place there's emissaries go out to the entire world to transform and bring Yiddishkeit everywhere. That power enables, being that we're working from a very low place, that power empowers that even the lowest of places should be transformed. Tul here is what it says. Now I'm going to give you the experiences I got 30,000 feet over the, over the, over the, in the sky. I'm thinking about this. And I'm thinking about, okay, 25 years passed since then. And the number 25 is kind of ringing in my head. Why? Because just the other day, I read the article in the New York Times. Not that I read the New York Times, but today's days we have uh, WhatsApps and everybody's sending you all kinds of stuff all day long. So as I opened up this, this article, it was an article about... Last week, Thursday, an announcement came from our president-elect that he is appointing to Israel. He is appointing um, an a ambassador, a religious Jew. And it's not just a religious Jew, but a religious Jew who has very, very, very strong opinions about the land of Israel and that the land of Israel and Yerushalayim belongs to the Jewish people. Now you realize, I want to I I just add one more thing. The war of the Klippa, as Klippa is losing its battle, as Klippa lost its battle, and it knows it's losing, it puts up its last fight. Its last fight is to completely, insanely, doesn't make any sense, to fight against the Jewish people taking possession of the land of Israel. Do you understand? If we're going to set up a, a godly kingdom in this world, it's going to be done on, a, on, with, on that, with that... On top of that hilltop, we will build the third base of Mingdash. And from there, Kimitzion Tetzei Torah, Udvar Hashem Yerushalayim. Now, our, our foes, or those that are trying to stop, the enemies that are trying to stop us from doing that, are the Palestinian people, the Arab people, the Arab, the Muslims that, are, that have been trying to stop this from happening. Now, we saw what happened in Berlin yesterday, and we see what happened in France a bunch of times last year, and we still remember the videos of the gruesome beheadings that we were being shown every day about the violence and the total disregard to human life that is being shown by these very people who want, who are the ones who are claiming that Eretz Yisrael, Jerusalem, should be their capital. It's miracles, and miracles upon miracles that, that, that Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, is being built up Someone sent me an amazing picture the other just yesterday. It was one collage photo. It was an amazing picture. It was a collage photo. And it showed like this. Libya, Yemen, Iraq, and Syria. Pictures of these countries. Each place of them, all you see is collapsed buildings and rubbles. In the middle, it shows Israel. And you see beautiful roads and the sky. Unbelievable. We don't see it. This is crazy. We don't realize the miracles that are happening. You have a few billion Muslims, everywhere is chaos, everything is collapsing on itself, everything is broken. They want to destroy one small little speck on the map, one small, and all their energies in there. And its places thriving, booming economy, building up apartments all over. Life is getting, 
you see the hand of God, it's unbelievable. But the Klippa cannot stand this. So they start the BDS movement. What does a college kid in the middle of rural America or in Europe, what, why do they care? You, 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 you want these Muslim killers? They should be your neighbors. They should be your friend. Does that, I don't mean every Muslim. I don't take it out. Of, I, I mean to say, do you see who these enemies are, who these people are? And, and what did the Jewish people do to you? We're, we're the ones who are inventing the, top, the best medicines. We're the ones who are inventing. Even the cure for AIDS is now coming from Israel. From, 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 from every, every good thing is coming from... What? It's insanity. Why? Because Kalipo wants to stop. And that's the one thing that bothers them. So what does the New York Times say? Here's what, here's what the New York Times says. 25 years of American policy in the Middle East has just been completely turned over because he appointed this Orthodox Jew whose views, and let me tell you what his views are. This person's views are the views of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Now the most outspoken tzaddik who spoke about world security and about these issues, we don't have other tzaddikim who really address this in a very concrete way about what the Lubavitcher Rebbe spoke about not giving back an inch of land that belongs to the Jewish people and how security and how if we give in and every word he said is true because every time you give in, exactly it brought the opposite, it brought destruction, it brought terror, extra terrorists and don't, don't, peace should be for peace, not for anything else. These were very strong. He is the exact, he actually learns with the Chabad Shliach, and that's who molded and developed all of his thoughts in regards to this, to Israel, and regards. He is the one now appointed to be Americans, America's, <laughs> America's ambassador who's going to set policy. Someone who believes in settlements, someone who believes in United Yerushalayim, someone who's, and this, again, even in the Bush, we're not even talking about the Obama administration. I'm talking about even the Bush administration. Now, I don't know what your feelings are about the election for, for many Jews, because Jews, there's, there's, you know, people have very strong views. And both sides, when we were, you know, were, it was a tough election. You know, people are very, very strong. But one thing is for sure. One thing is for sure. The, the, the side that was defeated in this election, its policies in regards to godly issues in this world, they were on the wrong side, without a doubt. When it comes to morality, an absolute denigration of all morals. The Torah says marriage is a man and a woman. That's what the Torah says. The Torah believes, Rashi even says that even if, Rashi says an amazing Rashi, Rashi says even Gentiles, Rashi says this themselves, that will you know, live with the same gender, one thing even a Gentile will never do, fall so low to write an official marriage contract, Rashi says, something like that? That, 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 that? That's like the basis of society falling apart. To go and make officially, officially, bathrooms so that people that are confused, that don't know if they're a man, I mean, this is such, and shoving this on people and forcing all normal people who have normal minds, giving, I mean, this is such garbage when it comes to matters of morality. When it comes to matters of Israel, do you realize what he did? He put all the Jewish people in danger by giving, allowing Iran to build a nuclear weapon. Who doesn't know what's really going on? She would have continued these policies worse than him. 100% without a doubt. So again, you might have certain issues when you like 
that, that, that's a different issue. We're talking about when it comes to the security of Israel, the Jewish people, and when it comes to the morality of the world and morality of the Jewish people, I'm sorry, the morality of the world and the morality of the United States, it's very clear who was what. Now, others are going to argue and are going to say that, well, our president-elect is not the most refined human being. Not at all. Pretty coarse. I mean, all the stuff that came out on him. Pretty coarse human being. Lacking in refinement. Not someone that you would let date your daughter, right? I mean, even if you weren't Jewish. Of course, you would think, like, come on. But that's exactly what we're talking about. That's exactly the point. Godliness, the the ultimate revelation of Hashem in the world, is when something that is low while it is low, in its lowness, in its lowness, not that it becomes high, not that it senses, as we spoke about. Light, light, godly light, is able to affect only those that are sensitive. But the divine essence reaches not to what is sensitive, reaches everywhere, even to the lowest point. If you're looking for a, a character who represents a low point, and then, then uh, again, yeah, you let me enjoy my fantasy a little bit now, please don't mind. He's a redhead, and if anybody would sell, I mean, if you know a little bit of his character, came across by the election, if anybody would sell his firstborn rights for a plate of lentil soup, if he's very hungry, he seems to be the perfect fellow. And last week in the parsha, we learned about Esav meeting Yaakov, and when Mashiach comes, both of them kiss. They both unify. If you're looking for a person that represented that world of Esau in its clearest, but in a way where he, and his other, here's the other crazy thing. In regards to all the policies that made him win, that we, no, see, he won because God interfered. There is no doubt in the world that he won because he had the media against him. Everything was against him. He only won because Hashem put him there. But the interesting thing is all the policies that he at least had backing for. He's going to build a wall and he's going to send back all the immigrants and he's going to put his opponent in jail. Guess what? All those things are kind of out of the window. Either, yeah, no. The one thing that he did and that he established is what? Puts up this ambassador who, is gonna, who stands for the unity of Yerushalayim and the unity of the world and the unity of, 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 of and, and the protection of the Jewish people. This is so insane. This is so clearly a miracle beyond miracles. Now, when did it happen? On the 15th day of Kislev. That's when he announced that. The 15th day of Kislev is when the moon is full representing, and, Chas, and Kislev is the month of Hasidus, when Hasidus, because I mentioned that earlier, it's Matan Torah coming from below, purification from the world, unbelievable. Yesterday on the 19th of Kislev was when the official electoral college gave him the vote to be rule and to be the president. Now we're not talking again, I want you to remember one thing, we're not talking about a refined human being, but that's the whole point of this discussion today. Dafka, because it's not a refined human being. Dafka because it's, it's, and there's much more to this, but I want to add one more thing. We spoke about, again, this is all my own thoughts, and I don't know if they're true. I'm just guessing, but it makes sense to me. And watch this. Here's, here, here's, here's there's another very powerful thing. We said the Jewish people are, Jewish people were sent into the nations only to elevate sparks and to make converts. So who's the last and final convert that we needed to convert? That's interesting, you know. I, I, you know, what would have been so dangerous? What would have been so dangerous if the other side would have won? Is that she was a? F- Everyone so happy. A lady is going to be president. It's beautiful if a woman would have been president. It's very beautiful. But if the woman is a klipa woman, 
then it was not so beautiful. You know why? Because in Kabbalah it explains that the, the female klipa is the worst klipa you can get. Very, very, very dark and very this. So what it's called the malchut element of the klipa. And you don't want that to get into power. But you know what you had? We spoke about the spark of malchus that was converted to Kedusha. So President-elect's daughter, who was very influential, converts. Now she's not your convert who damns mincha for four hours with a like, rebetzin covered her hair and shuckling a davani. No. But you have to realize that if you're looking for extreme things, then obviously everything I said today is, doesn't make any sense to you anyways. But if you get a little deeper into what's happening over here, her conversion is a kosher conversion. She spent time this week in Washington, D.C., looking for her shul, where she's going to daven in Washington. And here's another act of God. The first lady is totally on the sidelines. She's not even going to be like kind of everybody's talking about. It's not really going to be the first lady in the Purimah. She likes her own Trump palace. She's staying over here. Who is going to be kind of the first lady in the White House? A Jewish girl, a convert, the spark of America, converted to holiness. If, and, and that's the beauty. She is the spark. Her father is the shell itself. It's not the spark. It represents a rich American who has everything, who had access, who is pretty vulgar in his language and in his life. And guess what? He is doing God's bidding like no one else before. And it's absolutely not out of the question that he's going to be the one who is, whether going to be instrumental, I don't know how, where, or when, in the building of a Beis Amigdash and all of that. We believe it's going to come down from heaven. How, where, or when, I don't know. But the stage is set. And it all happened on the 19th of Kislev in the year 5777. The other interesting, very interesting idea is, I do want to say, that the Rebbe says that France is the word tsarfas, is the same gematria of 770, which is the building where the Lubavitcher Rebbe lived for all these years, transforming the world. The Rebbe says that number is a very important number in rectification of the world. Because 7 represents the creation, seven, seven, 70 nations, seven, 7 days of the week, 7 directions, meaning up, down, and then the center. 770 means perfect rectification of the entire globe, of the world. That's why France is that 770. And when Mr. Trump is going to be president of the United States on January 20th, which happens to be my English birthday, and he's becoming president of that day, so I feel I also have a nice big part in this. I'm just kidding. <laughs> when President Trump becomes president on January 20th, he is going to be exactly 70 years old, seven months, and seven days. Look it up on Wikipedia when his birthday is. Seven, seven, not 770, but 777. There's got to be, and we couldn't make this stuff up, this is, and it, the fact that it, 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 no one could conceive this. This, I, this was such unbelievable. And if you don't notice the miracles that Hashem is doing for the Jewish people, by we're coming to Hanukkah, the transformation. And if you don't learn Hasidus, then you totally miss it. Because you're expecting that hand, that, that fire is going to come from heaven, and this is going to happen. You're expecting Armageddon to come, and nuclear wars, craziness. If you learn Hasidus, then you know what's going on. You know there's a purification. There's a transformation. And you're looking dafka for low people or a low world to become a godly. And guess what? I was on the way home from the airport and I had a guy pick me up, a Guatemalan non-Jew. And he asked me, when I asked me from a rabbi, then he said, what did you read today? 
I was on the plane, I was plotting. There's much more to this, which I didn't even, even explain, because that will take a whole long other discussion. Because all of this I, came to me when I flew that way. There's a whole new chidushim that came on the way back. But in any case, when I spoke to him, he asked me, what did you read today? And I basically gave him a synopsis of all of this, in a very not, in, uh, basically telling him how the, how, how the work of all of humanity is to refine the world. And, uh, it was so refreshing in his eye, in his ears. He, he so resonated with everything I said to him, and how right it is, and how true it is. And, uh, and, uh, and then we got him to the point where he said, okay, so it's the seven Noahid laws that he has to keep, and that's how. And he was so open. The world is so open. But if we Jews don't learn Hasidus, and we don't know what's flying, we're living our lives not realizing. I'm telling you right now, you're going to be caught in your pajamas. Mashiach is going to come, and you're going to be in your pajamas unless you start learning Hasidus today. I'm sorry for being so harsh, but that's just the reality. We need to open up our eyes and realize what is going on in reality, what is happening in the world. And if not, okay, you missed the boat. You're going to come, but then don't know what's flying. Because if you come with ideas that belong that are still 300 years ago without updating one's understanding of how the inner works of Torah transform our outlook, then we realize that, hey, things are going on and we're missing it unless we understand how to look. We need to have a refined vision. And the refined vision, nothing to do with me, the refined vision comes from studying what the Balshemtov taught and later through all the tzaddikim as how they saw the world. And then we get to see a whole different story. May we all be blessed to see the coming of the redemption now, today.